0: Our podcast this week is brought to you by Masa Israel. If you have a high school junior or senior in your life, congratulations. They can now receive anywhere from $200 to $2,000 towards a life-changing gap year adventure in Israel with Masa Israel Journey. In fact, we did a cover story on them, and it's really highly recommended. It's one of the best programs uh, for Israel. Masa's selection of gap year experiences ranges from secular to religious, high tech to the arts, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and everything in between. They can volunteer, work, study, or intern while traveling the country, exploring their passions, and living as a local. To claim a scholarship, have your student go to MasaIsrael.org slash gap year. That's M-A-S-A Israel slash gap year. All one word. No spaces. This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. And today we're going to talk about food, food, food. One of my great life passions with author Paula Scheuer from D.C. Welcome, Paula.
1: Great to be here.
0: So what is it about food that holds our attention uh, like nothing else in the world, I, I'm always thinking, is food something that just fuels me to, for a living, or is food uh, uh, I'm sorry, is food an indulgence? Is food an expression of my mother's love? I have this complicated, deep relationship with food that I have for nothing else. What is it about food?
1: Well, it's not just about the food because so much of food is really about people and it's about sharing. And it's about memory and about experiences that we've had in our life, whether they're in a grandmother's kitchen or a meal you remember on a vacation to Italy. Those memories are so powerful, and they stay with you in a way that going to a museum that you've seen somewhere 30 years ago, you may not remember. I have this crazy memory for food, so I remember so many places I've been to, meals that I've had. But for me, it's as a Jewish cook, it's all about you know, my parents, my grandparents, our culture, and kind of keeping those traditions alive through food. So I think our relationship with food is multifaceted. It's about kind of the actual physical experience, you know, what it feels like in your mouth, how it tastes, the smell, the beauty of the presentation of the food. But the food tells a story, and I like to say sometimes that for Jewish people, food is this great trip down memory lane, and it's almost like when you experience food that brings you back to your ancestors and to these memories, it's like this hug from the past.
0: Well, you know, my, I have memories of my mother making Harida in Casablanca, and I have memories of my mother cooking uh, chicken dinners on a very cold night in, in Montreal. And it's hard for me to just separate the food from my mother. And I know that, you know, we were like hard pressed immigrants. And I remember she would like have all the kids eat first before she ate. And her chicken always tasted fantastic because she used saffron. <laughs> and That's it's,
1: great ingredient.
0: And, you know, she did tiny, tiny, tiny kitchens. And she would make these extraordinary meals. And now when she comes to LA and she sees these huge kitchens, uh, she's almost overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But you're so right. I mean, food and memories. I once heard something about soup, how soup in Eastern Europe had like this very emotional kind of connection that Jews had with, with soup. Um, and there, it's hard to separate.
1: Well, soup is also about poverty. I mean, it was right. about taking a small exactly. amount of ingredients and finding ways to feed more and more people. So it was it's like at its most basic kind of element soup is so nurturing you know
0: there was a scene in uh from survival a documentary in the warsaw ghetto and they had that soup kitchen and how they would have to add water so you're so right there's so many kind of levels and here in today's world food has become also a opportunity to express your sense of you know organic connection to the land it's also a source of uh, uh health and nutrition So we we focus on a more prosaic aspect of food. But it's
1: also about comfort because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm a pastry chef by training. And so I'm a baker at heart, even though, you know, I can't live on chocolate babka every day of my life. I have to eat real food and serve my family meals. But um, the idea of comfort, especially for Jewish people, is like we give people food. We bake for people when somebody dies, a baby is born, celebrations, birthday cakes. So it's such a part of, you know, kind of how we interact with each other and how we take care of each other as a family, as a community.
0: Yes. And and counteracting this, this emotional comfort idea is this sort of wave of new knowledge that you have to be healthy and that bread, for example, is now the big enemy because it's a simple carb that gets digested like sugar. So there's this kind of unemotional, rational sort of uh, tsunami of information that has kind of taken the emotion out of food in a way. You
1: know? It's hard because there are so many forces kind of yeah. coming at you in different directions. And we want to be healthy, but we want to eat. We don't want to give up our favorite foods. And you know, one of the reasons I wrote the Healthy Jewish Kitchen cookbook was that no one's ever going to convince me to give up challah and give up rugelach and give up the foods that I love that make me so profoundly happy. And I don't want like a new generation of cooks and Jewish people to say, well, I can't eat those things anymore because they're really bad for me and somebody's selling are bad for my health. So I feel like by making them more nutritious, I'm, I'm saving them from extinction. And mm-hmm. I don't want people to not eat certain things.
0: You know, there's a two schools of thought when it comes to the Friday night Shabbat table. One school of thought, my brother, very traditionalist, he wants the exact same meatballs with celery and peas, the exact same Moroccan fish, the exact same, you know, uh, um, eggplant salad. That for him is his Shabbat experience, which is nothing changes. And that's what I look for, forward to every Friday night. When I came to California. I met these people who would do like a Mexican Shabbat and an Indian Shabbat, and they would use the Friday night Shabbat table as a place of renewal, re- experimenting and rejuvenation. And I see, I see a place for both.
1: I agree with you yeah. completely. Although for a long time I was more like your brother; I wanted to serve the trendiest, the coolest, the most interesting, the newest cookbook recipes. But once I became no,
0: no, my uh, brother was a traditionalist. Oh, you he was the, the traditionalist. exact oh, the same, same thing. Meatballs. So, yeah, yeah
1: so. So the California style, you know, always having something trendy, like that was me for so long. But I actually have moved more towards the traditional, because if you don't serve your children some of those classic Jewish foods, then they don't know them. So I feel like for holidays, for Rosh Hashanah, for Pesach, Thanksgiving, there are certain dishes that are always going to be on the table. And the same recipe every single year. So when they taste this anywhere the rest of their life, it's going to bring them right back to my table at that holiday.
0: We have a running joke in our family. If... uh you know, a chicken on Friday night cannot be a Wednesday night chicken. It can't look like what you had during the week. It's got to have something a little special at the holiday My table. My
1: mother only cooked chicken on the bone on Shabbat, and chicken during the week it was always like cutlets, schnitzel. Yeah, It was like chicken on the bone was like a special thing only for Shabbat.
0: Yeah, and it becomes an, uh, an expression expression of the holiday, really, and a, a, a thing that brings us together now for the... Passover Seder, what do you do that's special for Passover, speaking of holiday tables?
1: Well, the Passover Seder is this huge meal, right? It starts with, you know, the matzah and the maror and the charoset and then the hard-boiled eggs and the salt water. My family has a tradition of making a soup out of the hard-boiled eggs, green onions, and salt water that my my father's family used to have, so we always have that at the table, and we I always serve, you know, matzo balls and chicken soup, you know, the classic. Now I have healthier matzo balls, which we can also talk about. And I would say it's typically going to be brisket and a, and a, and a kind of a simpler chicken because more pe- some people only want chicken, some people want meat. And I'm not really a Kugel person. I kind of rather have vegetables instead of turning my vegetables into cake and then always have desserts. But Seders, I often do a plated dessert because it's so late at night. There's so much food that by the time I get to dessert, I, I don't feel like I have to serve a buffet like I would normally do on like Rosh Hashanah.
0: Right. And, and also, I mean, the idea at holiday tables is that really conversation is more important than the food, is it? I mean, you're a food person. And how does a food person recognize that, you know, that, you know, the conversation should not just be about the food even when it's extraordinary?
1: I don't think it is. I live in Washington D.C., so you know there's a lot of a lot of things to talk about there are all the time that everybody wants to talk about. But I want the food to be special. Mm-hmm. I really do. I want mm-hmm. my children, my guests, my family, anyone who comes to my table to walk away feeling like Shabbat is so special. These chagim, mm-hmm. these holidays, are so such a wonderful experience because the food is so delicious and it, and it kind of elevates kind of physically but elevates the whole experience spiritually Mm -hmm. as well from having the really good food and i don't find people sit and talk about the food i always explain what i'm serving and then that's it
0: yeah although i
1: always like feedback if i'm developing recipes everybody has to kind of critique the food although my children had some issues with that they would go to other people's homes and critique the food when nobody asked them to
0: yeah we had a a seder in la that my mother did and it was so extraordinary i mean i wrote a whole column on it and that we were in the middle of these intense conversations and at some point everybody just stopped and we had to spend 10 minutes on the food. (laughs) Literally, we got up and applauded my mother. It was just that.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah,
0: there are certain moments when it, it takes over, but I do think also that it can influence the conversation in a positive light when you're honoring your guests with and you know they feel that you're doing something special
1: yeah and my husband always brings different questions and different topics to the seder every year you know Mm -hmm. my Parents' seder, my father's seder was very by the book. You just read all the words in the Haggadah, every single one, mm-hmm. and sang the songs the same way. And there wasn't a lot of discussion, and that's what you did. Mm-hmm. And then my husband's family seder's were very watered down. You know, you would do like a third of the of the Haggadah and then eat, and maybe sing two songs, and that was it. It was they were great singers; they had great voices, so that was really nice. But not a lot of meaning. so we wanted to be someplace in the middle for our own children. So my husband will always bring up issues. I think a couple of times we've talked about like enslavement today, like what that means mm-hmm. and how people feel about their lives, ways that they're stuck, whether it's you know as women, as children, as an, old, an aging person, like their experiences in their own lives. And
0: another part of my uh, deep conflict with food is if I have a Spartan experience, where I'll eat very, very light. I'll feel more spiritually elevated. And I find that that's another kind of the paradox, especially during the, the Chagim, the Jewish holidays, when you have literally 30 days from Rosh Hashanah to Simchat Torah, there's got to be like 20 Thanksgiving-level meals. Pretty much. Which is an enormous amount of heartburn and, and <laughs> calories and so forth. And I, I wrote about this once, and I said, sometimes the quantities become so much, this, I, this intent... This, you know, well-meaning intent to honor your guest kind of goes over the line and then, you know, you you can't move. And there's something unspiritual about that.
1: I agree. So that's why my approach is that you have to kind of balance out the traditional heavier food with lighter dishes as well. And that you can't have every dish be so heavy and so potato kugly heavy at your meal. Coming from an Ashkenazi background, so like in my last book, I had a lot of I have a lot of room temperature vegetable side dishes like uh, charcoal grilled cauliflower and a grilled eggplant with all different dressings on top of them. They're room temperature. They're just vegetables, like very simple, served with heavier brisket and meat.
0: You have to come cook in our kitchen. I'd be one happy day. to. Yeah. I'd
1: be happy to come cook with you. And great. you can teach me some great Moroccan. What I, I want to master is Moroccan breads. That's the one thing oh. I haven't gotten to yet.
0: Yeah, my mother is a champion. Oh, yeah. That. Okay, yeah. we'll get her in the kitchen right. with her. And speaking of my mother, who I can talk about all day long, you know, it, in the Moroccan tradition, uh, it's how many meats do you serve that shows how much you honor your guest. Meat is still seen as this incredibly elevated, uh, you know, item. So if you have like chicken, meatballs, veal, brisket, and lamb, and so forth, that means you want your kid to marry their daughter.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, I usually just... go for two. I'm usually yeah. like a red meat and then a chicken or a veal or a turkey, although I have to admit last Shabbat I served four main courses. One was vegetarian, but it was mm. like a turkey, a beef, and a cholent and wow, it was you... a little over the top.
0: Yeah, you, you had your Moroccan moment. I there. had a
1: Moroccan moment.
0: Yeah, so um, last year, we decided for Passover at the the Jewish the Jewish Journal that Passover is the is the time of year where everybody complains about what they can't eat. Right? This idea of restraint and sacrifice and the the missing of obviously of the bread and so forth. So and for Ashkenazi Jews, rice too. And then we decided that the, the one thing you really can eat at Passover is vegetables. So we decided to just, for our food issue, to celebrate vegetables. We turned Passover into the vegetable holiday, and we had our food writers give us their all-time favorite recipes of vegetables in a way. So that's kind of the liberation, if you will, you know? I
1: agree with you completely because I'm all about that as well. I mean, so many people are trying to eat lighter. And... You know, people have said to me for years, I, I do cooking demonstrations all around the world, and when I even when I was focusing on desserts, I, I would say especially then, when I would walk into a, a place to show up to do the cooking for a demo, they would look at me very suspiciously and think I wasn't a good chef because I wasn't overweight. Mm. And I'd say, well, it's all about balance, you know? Most of my meals on a regular basis, or like salads and protein, vegetables and protein, I don't eat a lot of rice, I don't eat a lot of pasta, I don't eat a, lots of breads, because I know there's a Shabbat meal coming up. There's a holiday mm-hmm. meal coming up. So I try to balance out knowing that I'm going to eat heavy meals with eating lighter meals. Right. Exercise is a component, too. So when right. I approach Passover, it's all about what you can eat, the same way you approach with the vegetables, because there's fish, there's chicken, there's all different kinds of meat. And it's springtime on the East Coast, too. Here, you always get great produce. But we have wonderful produce in this place.
0: Right. But what I've found is that they compensate during Passover with even more meat. <laughs> <laughs> this, they, they compensate for the complaint about not being able mm-hmm. to eat those uh, restricted foods. So we're, we hope that, you know, we're sort of expanding the canvas and not treating vegetables as second class citizens.
1: I think that trend is already yeah. well on its way. Yeah. I know there are so many great really high-end vegetarian restaurants on in Philadelphia, and now one in Washington, D.C., or there's one in New York as well, where the places are completely vegetarian, but not like tofu seitan vegetarian, but just taking vegetables and really elevating them. And I think that finally sort of the rest of the world is catching up to what Moroccan and Israeli cooks have known for years, that you can do wonderful things with vegetables for salads, for side dishes. So... As opposed to a kind of American approach to meal planning, which is it's all about the meat, it's all about the main chorus, as opposed to what else is on the plate It's just kind of thrown in there.
0: So you really see vegetables as becoming sort of the hero yeah. of the future plate. Yeah, you're going to see definitely
1: more of that in press, in restaurants. I already see it. You know, the
0: invisible burger. There you go. Yeah, and how do how are you seeing the the Jewish world uh, adapt to this? I know that you know I'll go into any typical yeshiva and. Uh, the food is really not very healthy, uh, and just the fact that it's kosher is hardly enough.
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, I'm part of a kind of kosher food blogger community, both on Instagram and Facebook, and and most of the time I see my friends posting reasonably healthy things, but people don't want to give up their sausages and salami, and they throw that into everything. And I know that there are certain communities, like these yeshivas, where you know, and I've seen recipes coming out of these communities, salad dressings with a half a cup of sugar. Every meat dish has soy sauce, ketchup, and brown sugar in it. They're eating kind of like people were eating in the 70s, and that hasn't changed at all. Mm-hmm. So I always feel like I still have so much work to do in kind of getting into these communities and getting them to kind of look at, add more vegetables to their meals, that cholent and, Kugel, and potato kogel is not a meal.
0: Yeah, the cholent, they cheat with ketchup. I mean, I know all the tricks. It's yeah. I always feel cheated when something tastes good and I found out, wow, they put a lot of sugar in right. it. Right. You, uh-huh.
1: you don't need to do that. My, my new trick with Cholent is I throw in sweet potatoes uh-huh. instead of white potatoes. And the sweetness of the sweet potatoes kind of changes the taste of the whole thing. So it's really good, but it has that little sweetness Sounds in
0: it. Sounds like uh, my, Morocco, my mother's Cholent. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Lots of sweet potatoes. Um, so Here I,
1: I thought I was being original.
0: No, you're not. You're, you are. Uh, <laughs> I do want to uh, offer you to send us something for our Passover food issue. Like your all-time favorite vegetable dish, because we're doing it. We're doing it again this year.
1: Oh, that's great! I just great.
0: want to celebrate. What is your all-time favorite vegetable dish?
1: Among many, among many, I would say my favorite recipe coming out of the healthy Jewish kitchen is my mango coleslaw. Now, when I was growing up, there was always coleslaw on the table, especially if you were serving gefilte fish, which Ashkenazim always do. You have that wonderful, you know, Moroccan fish. With tomatoes and all that, but we always serve gefilte fish and always, coleslaw drowning in mayonnaise was sitting there. So I decided to reimagine coleslaw, and I and it's great for California, you know, table because you always can find mangoes here. So it's uh, the the dressing is a pureed mango with jalapeno and cilantro and lime juice and some other ingredients that you pour over. You know, cabbage, and it's so great because it's great with it's great with anything you want to serve. It's great with gefilte fish. It's great as a side for any kind of meat or schnitzel, chicken, whatever. So, I would if say, somebody
0: wanted to get that recipe, which website can they get it on?
1: That recipe. It's a, it's a lot of places online. I think All you right. can even Google mango, coleslaw, Paula Schorier and find it. But I will give it to you Fantastic. so you can have it. We uh, will I, put
0: I sp- it right now. I'm making a deal right now. Right. It's going to be in our Jewish Journal food issue for Especially
1: Passover. Especially, like, and, and if you're, you know, during the year you're making fish tacos, any kind of fajitas. Ta- it's just a great coleslaw.
0: So, Paula, you know, uh, you were an attorney. <laughs> you graduated from uh, law school. You went to Brandeis. Mm-hmm. You were on your way to becoming a high-powered attorney in Washington, D.C., and then something happened along the way.
1: So what happened along the way was that my husband, Andy Scheuer, was sent by the U.S. Trade Representative's Office to Geneva, Switzerland, where he was the legal advisor to the World Trade Organization. So we moved to Switzerland for four years. I had a job with a Jewish organization that dealt with the treatment of Israel at the U.N., and still kind of practicing law, but overseas. And then two years in, I had my daughter Emily and just decided that I didn't want to work those hours anymore. And I was in Europe and I loved to cook since I had my easy bake oven when I was five years old and spending time in my grandmother's kitchen in Brooklyn watching her cook. I just always loved to cook and bake, but never imagined that that was actually a career. So I go to Paris where a friend was living and I did some cooking classes. I did a week of dough, a week of chocolate, a week of fours, tarts, and cakes, and I learned how to bake French pastries. Came back to Geneva, people asked me to bake for them. And then they insisted on paying me. And then a few of the Jewish women's organizations asked me to teach cooking classes for them. So the next thing you know, I've got a catering business, I'm teaching cooking classes, and when I came back to the U.S. with two kids, I started teaching cooking classes in my house edited somebody else's cookbooks, decided to write my own. And then it took me five years to get the first book, The Kosher Baker, published. And then I had the, health, the Holiday Kosher Baker, and then my two food books, The New Passover Menu and The Healthy Jewish Kitchen. So not a straight line, nothing really planned, oh, I was going to give up being a lawyer. I just... And and even now like different opportunities come my way and I just love being in the food world. It makes me so happy to make other people so happy.
0: So that was in the mid 90s, right? That yes. you went to so you're looking at 20 plus years yes. that you've been immersed in the food business, but your original training was on baking. How did you add on this additional component that's on everything else?
1: Well, if you're a person who's developing Pastries and, you know, babka, raw cakes, cookie recipes all the time. And that's what's sitting on your counter every single day. You start, like, eating kind of lighter and homemade natural food to kind of balance out the calories. So I always had food recipes. Most of them were basically in my head for years. I was still teaching food, food classes occasionally when I did demos, but mostly it was all about desserts. You know, because they were like, oh, the kosher baker's coming. We're doing desserts. But the reality is I had all these food recipes. So when my publisher asked me to write the new Passover menu cookbook, I literally took all the recipes in my head, never had measured them out, the recipes I make every Shabbat, the recipes my kids love, and I basically put them on paper and called them the Passover recipes. And so it was kind of like, okay, write a food book, I'll write a food book. And then, But the healthy Jewish kitchen was basically from scratch. I bas- I came up with ideas, just kind of reimagining food from my childhood, reimagining jewish favorites like challah and rugelach more whole grains less sugar trying to find a way to make that those favored favorite recipes of our of our community just a little bit lighter do
0: you have memories from your childhood that uh, sort of planted the seeds of your deep bond with food
1: so my grandmother was the great cook in the family and i would go to her kitchen in brooklyn and watch her measure ingredients with her hands and bake these beautiful cakes and this rugelach drowning in powdered sugar and her brownies and her stuffed cabbage and her meatballs i would blinces all year round stuffed
0: cabbage is a special place in ashkenazi people's hearts it really
1: it? it really does there's
0: something about stuffed cabbage
1: We just love it. I have a recipe for it in my Healthy Jewish Kitchen book, but I made it lighter with brown rice and ground turkey versus beef and white rice. Mm -hmm. But I, I am getting ready to publish the classic one, which is great. So I would watch my grandmother cook. Now, my own mother only baked once a year on Passover with cake mixes, you know, from the box. And my mother was a solid cook, but she probably made 13 different things and just rotated those all the time. But so grandma was the great influence. And the great story about my grandmother's kitchen is, you know, she had passed away. The house was sold. Grandma passed away at age 98. And I'm pretty much convinced that she lived to the age 98 on her diet of sponge cake. And she (laughs) so she was gone and her house changed hands a few times. And I ended up it ended up being in the hands of a Chabad in Brooklyn. Mm. And the rabbi and his wife were living in that house. And one day I got a call to do a cooking demo for the synagogue. They didn't know who I was. And I ended up doing a cooking class in my grandmother's kitchen for this Chabad community. Like the same kitchen where I watched my grandmother bake. You I mean in, in Crown Heights? In, no, in a in, um, place called Seagate in Brooklyn. It's at okay. the end of Coney Island.
0: Wow. That's so
1: a- kind of full circle.
0: Do you have a, a memory of your favorite dish growing up? Besides the uh, stuffed cabbage.
1: What was my favorite dish growing up? Oh, let's see. There's probably a couple. So I'm going to go back into my mother's kitchen, which I like. You know, one of my favorite things she used to make was a weeknight meal. Which was like a like a chicken schnitzel, and she didn't call it schnitzel; she called it cutlets. It was like a, you know, like a Jason's breaded chicken with homemade tomato sauce and spaghetti. And for some reason, that was the most satisfying meal in the world. I just loved it. Do
0: you ever remake it? Did you ever make it for your kids? And you ever... well,
1: I make the the chicken and I make the spaghetti, but my kids love meatballs, so it's hard to serve spaghetti without meatballs.
0: You know, it's so funny. I had we had this kind of crazy conversation the other day because. Um, everybody was talking about their, their new iPhones and, uh, and the upgrades and these new apps. We had this, like, 30-minute love fest on technology and mm-hmm. the digital world and everything new and everything new and these new apps, and they were making me dizzy. And as they were talking, I said, you know, time out. You know, the, this meatball dish, I think, hasn't changed in a 1,000 years. Right. Because <laughs> my mother was at the table. And she'd made these things. I said, it just struck me that uh, there are things in our lives that are never upgraded, that are not upgradable. And they haven't changed in absolute centuries. And I asked my mother, I said, you know, this dish, is it possible that your grandmother's grandmother made the same? She said, absolutely, because my grandmother learned it from her grandmother. So I know it's kind of a simplistic thought but the idea that there are things in our lives that are wonderful exactly as is and they haven't changed for centuries.
1: I agree with you on that, although like as Although a, we
0: renew them and we- Right, uh, as a
1: cookbook writer, I'm always trying to make them right. better. So like I've taken my family recipes and made them kind of- easier. My grandmother stuffed cabbage. I think she used four different saucepans. She had every surface covered. It was a multi, it was an all day experience and I made it much faster, but it still tastes like grandma's. So it, you know, it's legit. So, you know, my, my mother also made these great sweet and sour meatballs. This was like a family favorite. And the funny part about these meatballs, it's basically the sauce is Heinz chili sauce and a jar of grape jam mixed together. Of course. Right. And every family has like a sweet and sour meatball, but my grandmothers were so small. They were like the size of a dime, and I can never do that. But it's a fam- we love these meatballs, even though there's nothing healthy about any part of this recipe. Yeah,
0: I think that that's the aspect of the holiday meal, because it, it comes once a week or once a year. There's a little bit more flexibility for indulgence. Uh, but still, you're spending your life renewing the, the traditional, which is fascinating. And speaking of renewing, Uh, Why is it that everywhere I go, I'm hearing the word keto again? Can you please explain to me what keto means? I saw an article of yours recently where I think it was from uh, some paper in Colorado.
1: So I'm not going to hold myself out as a trained nutritionist. I am not an expert in dieting other than kind of keeping my own weight in check and having watched my husband, who's married to a pastry chef, be on every single diet that ever existed successfully. <laughs> he's on another one right now, and he just lost 30 pounds. But we'll see how it's What's we... it
0: called, his latest? Now life? he's on
1: Optavia. Octavia. Optavia is the new MedFast uh-huh. meal replacement thing. Okay. So it's a real bummer because when he's not eating all the food that I'm creating, but he's almost done. So I've watched him on a diet, and his diet is actually close to the keto diet. So I had been hearing about keto for a long time and started researching it because I was just curious you know what is this diet that everyone's talking about and it's very very low carb i mean onions and garlic have carbs which i didn't know Mm -hmm. mushrooms have less carbs certain vegetables so Mm -hmm. in keto vegetables that grow under the ground have more carbs than vegetables that grow above ground so you're trying to stay on this diet so you get into a state of ketosis where your body is burning fat Mm. because there's no carbs coming in so it's burning Mm -hmm. fat and people lose a lot of weight on it and
0: How is that different than the Atkins?
1: Oh, each one of the diets has like a different chemistry. Okay. You know, like some of them are no carbs at all, some are lower carbs, all very different. Gotcha. I've been on a couple of different diets off and on over the years myself, and I take pieces out of each one. I'm and, really good at moderating myself. And I don't,
0: keto is super low carb.
1: Yes, super low carb. And I started thinking about Passover coming up and the fact that people don't want to blow their diets on the holiday. So, maybe if there's a way to kind of create delicious recipes that fit within the framework of keto or Whole30, another popular diet, so people kind of lighten up their holiday meals just a little bit and not feel like they were, like you're describing, that overindulgence of so much meat and so much food and kind of, kind of, chill it a little bit you know like yes it's all going to be delicious and wonderful but let's have a a brisket that's a lighter in carbs let's have a matzo ball substitution and do keto matzo balls so that
0: meanwhile the the matzo itself is all carbs
1: of course. So you're going to have to eat that anyway, kind of halakhically. You have to eat some matzah. But if there's other food you could eat during the week, instead of making matzah okay. pizza, you could eat something. You could have gotcha. vegetables, you know, yeah. something better, you know, salmon.
0: Cauliflower with- uh, crust or something. Oh,
1: yeah. Cauliflower <laughs> is very kids. big. Because I feel like people spend so much time re-engineering kind of food so that you don't have to miss anything right. on Passover. Have you ever been in Israel for Pesach? Yes. Okay, so you don't even know it's Pesach in Israel. <laughs> you you don't, don't even know you're having hamburgers <laughs> you're, on a bun, and are you you're having kidding? paninis yeah, and pasta. In Tel
0: Aviv, they're making pancakes right on the street. But I there's remember.
1: kosher for Passover places that are right. making the rolls and the pieces and the pastas, and they are delicious. And you know, I, pe- I always
0: thought that, uh, that that went against the spirit of Passover. These new rolls that
1: I know you're look not like alone. Bread. My yeah. feeling is, I, yeah. I'm happy to eat those things because I'm still like, you know, these are the rules. I'm just following the rules. Right. You know, right. be in the spirit of Passover, I'm still going to eat matzah. I'll still get that mitzvah. I'm still having a seder. But during the week, I want to enjoy my food and not feel, you know.
0: You know, it's funny. When can. it comes to diets. you know, w- one of the uh, conventional wisdoms is that uh, they keep changing the rules. Uh, this is good. Now this oh. is good. Now this is oh, bad. Oh, eggs this is, is a great example. Right. Eggs, eggs are bad. Eggs example. are good. Eggs and are bad again. And fat yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But still, throughout all of these gyrations, isn't it fair to say that... Vegetables are always great, and broccoli and spinach and and all that kind of stuff. Nobody ever said those were bad, and that's what I tell my kids all the time. yeah, well, some
1: diets are telling you some vegetables are better than others. Which ones? Um, So I guess the keto goes by the above-ground and below-ground thing. So, like, carrots and sweet potatoes and squashes aren't as good as the cauliflower, the broccoli, the mushrooms, things like that. Right. Yeah. It's just, you know, a different way of looking at it, you know. But for me, like my whole adult life as a chef, creating recipes all the time, has just always been about, you know, kind of exercise. I became a runner about five years ago, and that really helps. And, you know, eating like some lighter meals knowing that I've got a babka in the oven that has to get eaten.
0: You know, I went, uh, I went to a head of our kid's school years ago, and I spoke to him about nutrition, and he thought I was speaking Greek. But his argument was, if we start doing these kind of things for the lunches, they're not going to eat it. So it's the classic argument, right? The I hear pizza, that all the time. Dog, classic. It
1: goes in the garbage. We've tried giving vegetables to the kids; right. they just throw them out.
0: But isn't that sort of a, a call to parents to kind of teach their kids when they raise them to develop a taste?
1: That's what for they do broccoli? in France. So what they do in France, and we're talking kids who go to like the creche, the preschools when they're eighteen months old, and they're there all day. And they feed these kids lunch. So just imagine 18-month-olds, 2-year-olds, sitting at little tables and chairs, putting napkins on their laps, okay? And being served, like, a grated carrot salad and then, you know, kind of a piece of chicken and, like, uh, maybe some potatoes or some rice and then, you know, or, or fish sometimes and then a piece of cheese and a small amount of dessert. These daycares, these preschools, they give these kids different vegetables all the time. And they keep changing how they, how they make them. So an American parent, if they give their kid broccoli, however they make it, and the kid says, I don't like broccoli, the mother will never make it again. While the French approach is, okay, the kid didn't like the steamed broccoli. Let's do saute with a little soy sauce. Let's roast it in the oven. Let's turn it into a puree. Let's turn it into a soup. They keep introducing the vegetables in so many different ways till they find one preparation that the kids will like. Mm-hmm. I always call that approach "leave no vegetable behind," so and that's what I did with my children. I just kept introducing new food and new the vegetables in different ways.
0: And there's also, like you were mentioning, for the in the French example, a certain ritual of eating itself, as opposed to just picking up something and eating it as you're walking or running to your room and so forth. Right. There's a certain reverence. Of course, for kids the are going to, per-
1: and of course, kids are going to prefer the chicken nuggets and like you know the. The, pot, the macaroni and cheese from the box. Like, who wouldn't? You know, like, it's just yummy food. But if you train your kids really early to have natural food, not anything packaged, not everything fried, and everybody's eating that food, then they become really good eaters. And getting them involved in cooking makes such a big difference.
0: Right. And I also look at front label and back label. So you have things that uh, appear to be healthy. For example, those snacks, those protein bars, by the millions... And so many of us, you know, think it's a great, healthy snack. But you read the front label and you don't read the back label. And America is very much of a front label society driven by advertising Mm -hmm. and seduction. So on front labels, you see healthy, natural vitamins and so forth. But you look at the back label and then it's chemically modified starch and sucrose and fructose. And that's, you know, the lawyer language.
1: And so simply... Nothing in a package is ever going to be as healthy as something you make from scratch at home. So my marching orders when I wrote my last book was not to use anything out of a package. I mean, I used rice out of a package and beans out of a can, but I didn't use any sauces, any mayonnaise, any of those kind of processed things that make our lives really easy. And I never said this because my publisher says I'm not to say this, but I actually lost weight when I wrote the book because when you're not eating processed barbecue sauce and, you know, a dressing or a, you know, a mayonnaise or all that kind of pre-made stuff in your food, you're going to lose weight.
0: Yeah, I wasn't always successful, but I, you know, being a former rat guy, I would always tell my kids, you know, God's candy, right? So I would call an apple and a banana, God's candy. Mm -hmm. They didn't buy it all the time, but then, you know, it's, there's no packaging on God's candy and neither are there an almond. So an apple and some almonds is a lot better than a kind of a expensive protein bar.
1: And I always baked for my kids. I was always working on dessert recipes. So there were always baked goods in my house. And the kids never overate them. You could put a chocolate layer cake in front of my four kids, and they would take one slice and walk away, because it was so rich, it was so good, and they never took more. And the one thing, we always had ice cream in the house, we never really had candy, and we never had soda. And so soda was the only thing my kids would binge outside the house. So you'd put them on a a flight to Israel, and they would drink Coca-Cola for 13 (laughs) hours straight. And that's when I realized that they don't overeat desserts. My kids would come home now when they come home from college and from from their grad school and from whatever they're doing now. My kids are between 19 and 24. When they come home and say they're hungry, they don't want a cookie. They they want food. So I now have to make schnitzel, meatballs, and spaghetti and a pot of beef barley soup as snack when they're hungry. That's not our meals. That just has to be in the fridge and available for second dinner and for any snack time they need.
0: Interesting. You, you must have happy kids.
1: They're happy kids. And yeah. they're not. And none of them are overweight. They all exercise. They all play sports. And they all kind of fully appreciate the taste of homemade natural food.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole dark side that we haven't touched at all. You know, the, the side of uh, overeating and Um, eating disorders and the obesity crisis and stuff. Uh, Is that something that ever enters your your radar?
1: I think about it a lot. I really do. Um, I have a really hard time when I see people who are obese because I have two friends who were overweight who both died of heart attacks in their 40s. Mm. And so I understand about, you know, kind of the whole kind of body image thing and that, you know, the perfect body isn't necessarily the thinnest body. But when I do see people who are obese, it makes me really sad. It does. Um, it's not easy to eat less, you know, if that's your habit. It's really hard. There's so many tools out there today, whether it's diets, coaches, helpers, nutritionists who can help people lose weight. So I do think about that, which is why I love teaching children how to cook. And I've done that at Camp Ramon in Massachusetts for... 12 years already mm-hmm. so I have kids who are like between like 14 and 17 and I'm teach some of them have never eaten salad before mm-hmm. and I give those kids, those kids the job to cut up salad so I teach them how to make soup and salads and how to design meal that I talk about how to make a plate colorful so you have different nutrients on your plate mm-hmm. so the more that's why one of the things I've loved about you know kind of food network and food TV and the whole Instagram food culture is that it's pretty cool now to be interested in food and it's an opportunity for food professionals and parents to kind of get the kids more involved in that. Because mm-hmm. kids who cook the food and find that it's fun realize that the homemade food is actually really good. Uh, even if you want to eat a biscuit at some restaurant, the homemade one is going to be better for you. So mm-hmm. bake it at home.
0: Do you have friends who come to you who might be overweight and ask for your help?
1: Yes, a little bit. Now I send them on to the coaches and all that. And I try not to be that much of it. Try not to be the enabler. Like I, I definitely was bad for years because if I was writing dessert cookbooks, by Friday night, there would probably be at least 10 different desserts sitting that I wanted to get rid of. And I'd put them out to people. And, I'd, and some of my friends were overweight, and I'd feel badly about that because yeah. I'm not going to tell anybody to eat one cookie Right. You know, and, as opposed to five. Yeah. So and, it, it's troubling. So now, most of my food really is on the healthier side. But, you know, thro- with a chillin' thrown in here and there. And, you know, I'm going to eat some potatoes and some rice. I'm not going to serve my meals on Shabbat, just vegetables and protein. Right. Because it's not special enough. I feel like I have to do that.
0: Well, this was a very special conversation. And I'm very grateful that, that you came in, Paula. If somebody wanted to find out more about all your books and stuff, it's... Give us the website.
1: So they can find me at the kosherbaker.com. I'm on Instagram as Kosher Baker and on Facebook as The Kosher Baker and my name Paula Scheuer. But I also want to mention that I started a Facebook group last summer called Kosher Baker, where other people post their desserts and baked goods and their challahs and their stories as well about them on that Facebook group. And you just have to kind of click on it and I approve you to join. But it's been wonderful. Everyone was sharing and recipes. Um, a woman was posting challah every week, and she would post, like, 12 challahs every week. And <laughs> somebody finally said, why do you make 12 challahs every week? She says, well, four are for my family, and eight I always make because somebody's sick or somebody's family member just passed away. And I just try to give them out in, a, in my community. And I thought, what a beautiful thing that she was able to share that with, like, my my cute little group.
0: Uh, do you have a Sfin's recipe yet? Those Moroccan donuts? for Hanukkah? Sphinx.
1: I I know yeah. about Sphinx. I, oh. I have published many donut recipes in my But you don't have house. Sphinx yet. I don't have that one.
0: Well, I'm going to have, my mother's going to have to join your Facebook group.
1: Yeah, no, I, I would yeah. love that. I'd love them, but I, wanna, I want to learn how to make the various breads with the different things inside. Morocco had the spongy breads, the thicker bread. I loved all the breads.
0: Do you know that for Purim, they do a kind of a roll with Haman's eye in the middle. It's an egg in the middle. It's hysterical.
1: Oh, I have to look They've that up. Made They've What's done the it name for of centuries?
0: That? I have no idea.
1: Yeah, ok. I'll check it out. But
0: uh, I'll send you a picture,
1: yeah. Really. Perms really. was really fun for me this year. I had a lot of fun coming up with Homeageshi and recipes. And I'm, you know, I'm going to continue to post lots of. Passover dessert recipes, I I do pies for Passover, I do all different kinds of cakes, so it's a lot of fun for me as, like, the scientist in the kitchen to say, okay, fine, no flour, big deal, what else can we play with? So the nut flours, the coconut flours are really fun for me.
0: it's so interesting because we have this amazing food writer called Yamit, who is the executive chef at the uh, U.S. Embassy in Uganda, and part of the reason people love her stuff so much is because she just tells stories, and... All these food, all these stories you're talking about is like part of the love of that people have and the attraction and the bond they have towards food.
1: Yeah, I think it'd be a really fun Seder for everybody to almost do it like a potluck and everybody gets assigned a certain kind of part of the meal to make and they have to come and tell the story of that food. That's a
0: fantastic idea, the story of each dish. So give me an example of when food played a deep role in your life.
1: So... The Healthy Jewish Kitchen Cookbook, which came out in um, November of 2017, um, is very, very special to me because of the time that I created this book. So my publishing company, Sterling in New York, had come to me and asked me, would I be interested in writing a cookbook, a Jewish cookbook that emphasized a healthy approach to eating? And as a pastry chef, I was always eating lighter food, so it, it made perfect sense. Um, But at the time I got that call, it was literally five weeks after my mother passed away from a 12-week battle with lung cancer. And I get this message and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this because I was spending all of my time kind of every night and a good part of the day kind of on the sofa, just kind of grieving, eating a lot of ice cream, eating my feelings and kind of feeling kind of down. So I wasn't even sure at first if I could do it. And then... I guess at some point I realized I couldn't. How many
0: months was this after the death? Five weeks. So five weeks. Five so weeks. So, so like you were finish of
1: finish loshim and right. then
0: and you were still and I was grieving. still like
1: because I was going to Minyan every night. I'm mm-hmm. one of those conservative women who's had Kaddish for both my you know parents mm-hmm. you know every day, and I would come home from Minyan and I would just kind of be just completely exhausted. You were
0: very close with her.
1: Yes, we were close. And, uh, but they were in New York. I was in Washington. So it was an exhausting period of just going back and forth. I always call it, you know, being a member of the Panini generation where you're raising small kids and you've taken care of sick parents and you feel like that crushing sensation that the word sandwich doesn't quite fully capture.
0: And there's now this big, big hole in your life. You, you, you can't make that call to your mother anymore.
1: Right. And then you also feel like, okay, you're supposed to get up after some point and kind of get back to your life. And yet I wasn't quite ready to do that. But I did realize that I love writing cookbooks and I knew I couldn't sit on the sofa forever. Like I knew that I had to move forward. And, you know, as I went through the process of, you know, deciding to write the book and and starting it, I I realized that it was a good idea to just do something. You know, I couldn't do nothing. And I really do love creating recipes. So I started the recipe developing recipes, the first recipe I developed for the book was my grandmother's stuffed cabbage recipe, Mm. and people really enjoyed, like, my lighter twist on that, and I would create a couple more recipes, and people really liked the recipes, and working with just natural food, I started losing weight, you know, kind of that Shiva heavy, you know, that Shiva weight that you gain... And I started to feel lighter and my kind of whole kind of temperament became lighter.
0: You threw away your two best friends, Ben and Jerry's from the ha- house?
1: Yeah, yeah. They kept me comfortable. They kept me company for quite a few weeks. And I finally kind of got rid of my ice cream and I was just eating what I was creating in the book. And just keeping busy really kind of helped me kind of get past the grief. It gave me purpose, it gave me kind of hope, it made me happy because I was spreading joy of food once again to other people in mm-hmm. my life. And and what I did to like pay tribute to like my childhood was that I have recipes that I grew up with that I kind of reimagine and or experiences I had as a kid. I remember eating peas and carrots from a can growing up. And that's and the cover recipe is grilled carrots with a pea tarragon puree, like a complete reimagining of it. Um, so, you know, writing this book really saved me in so many ways. And sadly, my father also passed away as the book went to press. So the book is dedicated to their memories. And I talk about foods I grew up with throughout the entire book.
0: It's interesting how the first word is healthy. Yes. But right after all, you're grieving the passing.
1: Yeah. I mean, parents. you know, most of us who've been through Shiva realize the kind of food that shows up. Mm-hmm. And it's in mass quantities. And some of it's good and some of it's less good. In New York, we were getting like vats of coleslaw and potato salad every single day, food that you can't repurpose anyway. I I joke sometimes with people that I could do like my own episode of Shiva Chopped where you take Shiva food and you repurpose it. I could turn any crudite into a soup I can take roasted vegetables into a, a side dish a, a new thing I was constantly repurposing all the food
0: well I'm looking here page 45 arroz con pollo with brown rice and salsa verde oh it that's a special it looks fantastic
1: one. yes we have we've had a Peruvian nanny like, help us with our kids for years and she taught me this recipe although I will say Betty was offended that I used brown rice versus white rice uh-huh. she's a total purist but this sauce is incredible and the sauce is also in my passover cookbook so we've definitely used that for passover too the sauce i mean in a
0: sense you serve this at a shiva you're honoring the memory of those who passed
1: absolutely yeah Yeah, i think that people should try to when you're cooking for people who are grieving you know we all want the comfort food and so much of kind of the jewish people approach to our foods of our past is all about that comfort food Mm -hmm. that like food that we grew up with some of it's a little bit too heavy but you know, the cookies and the cakes are going to show up for Shiva anyway. So, like, if you're cooking meals for somebody, try to go lighter. People will really appreciate that because they really don't have that much of an appetite.
0: Right. You want to k- keep the comfort but just make it make it wholesome.
1: Absolutely. Wholesome
0: comfort. Well, on that note, Paula, uh, great to have you here next time you're in L.A. Come back. Tell your son to come to our Shabbat table.
1: I will. i always happy to come back, especially since one of my kids is here now.
0: Yes, and we'll look forward to that. Um, let's see, coleslaw, the
1: mango coleslaw,
0: mango coleslaw recipe. It's in just Journal. so
1: bright and fresh. I think it's just like a perfect LA kind of food.
0: Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks again, Paula. Thank you. Happy Passover. To you too. podcast this week is brought to you by Masa Israel. To claim a scholarship, have your student go to MasaIsrael.org slash gap year. That's M-A-S-A Israel.org slash gap year. All one word, no spaces.